From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News and I'm your host, Kate Moody. We've got another show full of great stories and big conversations for you. Listen for Neobank Vexi raises to offer young Mexicans affordable credit cards. We're really lucky to be joined by one of the co-founders of Vexi, their COO, to talk us through the background to this raise, what they're looking to achieve in the market and why they're sort of sequencing their products in the way that they are. Our next story is that gig workers are being denied equal opportunity to financial services, digging into the research behind this story, trying to understand the real problems that they face and why the financial services industry is really struggling to give these people access to the products and services that they need. And our bank mascots being put out to posture. We talk about the sad demise of Hubert the Harris Lion and also speculate about what an appropriate mascot could look like for FinTech Insider. We get into all this and much more. But first, a few brief messages. This is FinTech Insider After Dark. We are breaking out of the studio and bringing it to the community. It's a live recording of the FinTech Insider podcast featuring your favorite hosts and big name guests. Well, thank you very much for having me back. Join us and become a certified FinTech Insider. Whether it's beers in London or pizza in New York, catch up with FinTech geeks and make new friends across the financial services ecosystem. This is packed out, right? It's standing yeah. only. We are bringing After Dark to the Steelyard in London on the 29th of March. Click the link in the podcast description or visit 11fs.com forward slash after dark. Thank you very much for joining us, everybody. Good night. Hello and welcome, LFG people, to Fintech Insider, Blockchain Insider, 11fs Spotlight, 11fs Explores, Open Mic Night, After Dark. Through our podcasts, videos, newsletters, and live events, we have a direct line to a truly global fintech community. So if you're looking to sponsor and collaborate on content that connects with everybody from fintech beginners to the biggest VCs, then chat to our team at sponsors at 11fs.com or visit 11fs.com to find out more. Long live the community. Welcome to episode 710 of Fintech Insider. I'm Kate Moody and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by some great guests to break down this week's biggest stories in fintech and financial services. Firstly, it's my 11FS co-host, Benjamin Enser, Director of Research. Benjamin, you've got a beer in hand. I'm very excited for you. How's your week going? My week is going okay, thank you. I'm excited to see your, your analysis with with a beer versus, versus without a beer. To be clear to our listeners, I've not had much of the beer because um, <laughs> my comments might be rather longer and less insightful. <laughs> awesome. Making a FinTech Insider debut, we have Ali Hamrity, co-founder and CEO at Rolly. Welcome to the show, Ali. We'll get into your news a little bit later, very exciting, but can you give our listeners a brief introduction to you and your, your company, please? Sure. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm a Moroccan and French data scientist turned entrepreneur. Uh, from my past experiences as a credit scoring builder, I discovered the difficulties of uh, building an inclusive uh, one for self-employed people because we struggled a lot to infer their income situation. And we figured out that leveraging the data coming from work platforms like freelance or geek platforms uh, to evaluate their solvency uh, in, like, in a better way uh, works better. And this is why I founded Worley. Uh, because income data fragmentation today is huge. Uh, we have like to access to all of those platforms and to rely on them to build better uh, credit scoring models. So through our API, we help uh, banks, uh, fintech, insurance, and many other businesses easily access their users' income data and make better and more, more inclusive decisions based on it. Awesome. Definitely excited to see what you guys are up to and to talk through your news. Thank you very much for joining us. We also have a Fintech Insider debut for Cynthia Melos, co-founder and COO at Vexi. Welcome to the show, Cynthia. Can you give our listeners a little bit more information about you and Vexi, please? Yes, sure. Uh, well, I'm Mexican, but living in Kentucky. I am a mother of a 60-year-old, besides mothering Vexi. And I think my story comes to when I was raised by a single mom in Mexico, that was on her 20s, working, studying, and trying to be a parent at the same time. So it was very hard to her to get access to credit because she, what she used to do, she was reselling things. And I saw my mother all the time, like trying to get credit from her family, basically, or pawn shops, or outrageous microcredit with interest rates that will skyrocket and will uh, surprise you. And when I was growing up, I was 
I was studying and working too, and I got scholarships to go to, to private schools in Mexico. And that's when I realized how different my life was from my mom because I had access to this kind of credit and how it changed my life. So at certain point in my life, I decided that I wanted to do this for, for my, my people, you know, for Mexicans, for Latin Americans. And that's why I jumped in to create uh, Banksy, which is a credit card that grants access to underserved people in Latin America, in Mexico right now. Awesome news. Well, fantastic context. Thank you. And looking forward to jumping into the news of you as well. So thank you very much for joining us. With that, let's get into the news. So our first story comes from TechCrunch, and that is that Neobank Vexi is raising millions to offer young Mexicans lower interest rate credit cards. Mexican fintech Vexi has raised an $8 million Series A round led by Magna Partners. Vexi's only offering so far is a credit card, which it offers through American Express without using any third-party issuers or processors. In Mexico, less than 20% of the population has access to a form of credit, with just an estimated 10% having credit cards. About 75% of Vexi's cardholders are between the ages of 18 and 35, and their average income is $600 to $800 per month. Nearly 60% of its customers are self-employed or run their own business, the majority of which have reported using the cards to purchase business supplies. Vexi's offering also includes interest-free instalments, cashback, purchase insurance, and competitive interest rates. Cynthia, unsurprisingly, I'm going to come to you first. Um, Firstly, congratulations on the raise. Can you tell us a little bit more about the credit market in Mexico, please, before players such as yourself came along? What, What should our listeners know about Mexico? Yeah, I think the structure itself or the market doesn't allow to be very financially inclusive because in Mexico, it's I think it's around 55% of the occupied population works in the informal sector. That it's like 30 million people versus 26 million people that work for the formal economy. And they just can't prove income. So no traditional bank will grant them uh, access to credit. And the average monthly income for men, and then at the end of 2022 was $350, when traditional bank average income requires are around $500. And not surprisingly for women, it's below that, it's $280. So as you can see, like the whole structure goes against granting access to credit to this segment. And the options they have, as I was telling before, uh, is cash, of course, pawn shops, microcredits, and the annual interest rate is like, you can you can uh, find above 500% annual interest rate. So we wanted to break that vicious cycle. 500% interest, yeah, definitely does not sound like fun. Um, you guys have chosen to start with, with credit cards over current accounts. Obviously, you know, that might be a different strategy than some of our listeners have seen play out in other markets. Why was that the right place for you guys to start? Yeah, I think the needs in Latin American market are quite different from Europe or other developed countries. Um, the problem here is not the need for digital current accounts or cross-border payments. The need is more critical with only one out of 10 adults having access to credit, well, to credit cards and two out of 10 having access at uh, any source of credit. The need they have to, to financing is very different and we really believe that credit well used can change people's lives. Like, for example, only 65% of our customers have a, are first-time credit card users. And 95% already have a debit account. So as you can see, the, the need is bigger. Than- yeah, for sure. Um, the other thing that I thought was really interesting, kind of looking at the, the intro to the story, was that kind of customer mix that you guys have set out so far, you know, that, that mix of maybe sort of in typical sort of retail type customers versus what I guess other people might see as, you know, small business customers or self-employed people. What does a typical customer look like for you guys? Is there such a thing? Um, And how does that kind of mix of customers affect what you guys are building? We have definitely young users and that's how we intended it to, to be because the younger they are, the more you can do for them. You know, you can have more financial education for that, that segment. Uh, as you said before, they have around $600 per month income. And it's very important to us that they are digi- digitally native or and they are also first-time credit card users, as I was saying. And that is very important because what we are doing is 
we are including not only the access to the credit card, but we are also taking care that our UX allow us to bring them more information on how to use a credit card correctly. Because it's a little, at least here in Latin America, when you hear about using credit cards, people will say, no, I don't want to, I, I don't want to owe more than I, that I, I, I am winning. But really what they can do is like use that credit to build their, their patrimony and use it to pay for some goods that will help them to improve their their lives in the in the short term for sure yeah and obviously it was very powerful to hear you know at, at the start of the show when you were kind of describing your own personal route into Vexy kind of that that inspiration that you'd personally taken obviously coming from that single parent family and kind of seeing that that impact and the pressures how has that life experience sort of influenced the Vexy product directly is that something that is just your view is, is that view shared across your, your other co-founders how does it all come together yeah uh, all my co-founders come from middle class in Mexico. All have studied in public school and made their way through studying in, in private school. That is very important because, unfortunately, public education in Mexico has a lot of improvement areas, you know? So uh, we all come from different backgrounds. Two of my co-founders come from the bank. I, I don't come from the bank. So something really important when I started Bexy and managing communication and marketing was, I want to tell a different story. I want our customers to feel welcome, to not be afraid of asking questions. I want them to feel that they can trust us because people in Mexico don't trust their banks. They think that they are going to have these small letters and I don't know, like they don't trust them. So to me, it was really, really important to show them we cared and actually take decisions that show that in, in the path. And sometimes those decisions necessarily doesn't necessarily take you to, to do more money more fast, but in the long run, it makes you win their loyalty and to be sure that you are serving them correctly at that that they want to stay with you in the long run. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, I have a lot of, of clients. I, I talk to my clients once a week. So I make client interviews once a week. And once I found this story of this single mother that was telling me that she bought her, she was reselling shoes. So she used uh, Bexy to buy shoes. Then she reselled them and she could make a profit out of it without paying interest rates because we taught, we taught her how to use the times uh, in the credit card system, you know? So to me, it was like, that was my mom's story. If she had Bexy at that time, she could have, her life would have been so much easier. Yeah, that's hugely powerful. Absolutely. Um, well, thank you so much for, for sending that out for us. Benjamin, is, is Mexico the market to watch, do you think? How excited are you by, by Mexico as a, as a developing market? I mean, it's a huge country, right? It's a huge economy. I think it's the, something like the 15th largest economy in the world. It's the fourth largest economy in the Americas. There are millions of people who live in Mexico. So of course, it's a fascinating market to watch because, you know, there's so many people who live there. You know, and, and it has a, what happens in Mexico has an impact on what happens elsewhere in Latin America, as, as Cynthia is saying, you know, this is, you know, we've seen lots of products move from one Latin American country to another. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, Mexico, huge economy, millions of people, quite a young population as well. Um, and, you know, strong links to lots of other economies, both in Central Central America, the United States, and so on. So yeah, hugely interesting market. And I think we're starting to see as well, a lot of um, you know, Silicon Valley firms actually kind of starting to poach tech talent or have, have consistently been poaching tech talent from from Mexico. So there's definitely kind of a, a, an interesting mix across across boundaries kind of going that way as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've got those sort of um, cultural links because, you know, there are lots of people of Me Mexican descent living, in, living in, in, in the United States and Silicon Valley, frankly, hoovers up bright talent from all around the world. Um, and, you know, Mexico is very close to the United States. Silicon Valley is very close to, um, to Mexico. So it's an obvious place for um, firms to hire smart people from. Ali, what do you what do you think of of what Vexy are building? Obviously, they've uh, set out kind of a strategy for them to be able to take their own approach to credit scoring, and, and that was something you kind of touched on in the intro as well as being a space that you guys are looking at. So, what's what's your what's your view on what they're doing? 
It's obviously super exciting, and I completely agree with the approach of Cynthia to build loyalty over time and to start by onboarding um, long-term users or young users, uh, because this is like the massive pain that has to be solved in emerging countries is to trust with the local banks. And unfortunately, uh, because I grew up in Morocco uh, as well, I can like see some similarities between Latin America and, and African countries. And like this approach is in the long term better than just trying to solve uh, a pain, like, uh, for example, a cash advance that will be used like several times, but without having, knowing like the needs of an end user during the long term, like helping them to access a better education in the future, helping them to get a mortgage. So building like this long-term relationship with, with, with users. Um, I think that uh, to solve like this pain, you need a data-driven approach, of course, because if you have the majority of your customers that are self-employed people making revenues by, by cash for the majority of them, you need like to process in the right way uh, your uh, analysis and you need to build this trust by having some some facts, some KPIs, by uh, sharing some data with them to help them in, in their uh, banking journey. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Cynthia, one other thing I wanted to, to pick up with you that I thought was really interesting in how you talked about the, the raise and some of the important decisions you guys were making was the fact that your credit card is offered through American Express but without using any third-party issuers or, or processors um, and the options that's given you for increasing the revenue that you're driving through interchange. How, how easy was that for you to do if it was straightforward? I'm guessing all startups would do it. Yeah, it wasn't easy at all because uh, we have to, to build from scratch the core of our system. So, so what some companies are doing now is they hire a third party to do it and they just get in charge of marketing and sales, maybe, you know? Definitely, I think something really important was the background of my, of my co-founders, Gustavo and Gabriela, and of course, Salvador. Salvador uh, used to work to, uh, by, to HP before, before Vexi. So I think that they already, and Gabriela and, Salvador and Rojo came from, from the bank industry. So when we decided to join to put Bexi together, uh, we had the credentials and the credibility in the ecosystem that we could do it. But it took, it took us like a year just to develop the core, you know? Like it took us maybe more than a year to develop the core system and then to have all the certifications we needed just to start uh, proving our, our product. So it was a long run, uh, but we definitely believe that this is very, very healthy for us because our time to market is faster. And also because our costs are like a third of those companies that are using a third party. Yeah, that's super, super interesting. Kate, I, I, mean, I think one of the really interesting points here is about the sort of regulatory infrastructure. So in addition to the sort of technical points that Cynthia is making about building their own platforms, there's also the question of how easy is it to get approval from central banks and so on. And we know that in some economies in the world, like for example, the United States, it's very difficult, very costly to get banking licenses and you have to get them state by state. And that, of course, is encouraging lots of new digital brands trying to come up with new solutions to partner with banking as a service providers and so on. And obviously that means giving up some of that interchange to the partner. Cynthia, from what you're saying, in Vexi, you've gone and got licensing directly. You've got approval directly from the regulators. And that obviously costs you some money in time in getting that approval and building your own systems, but then saves you money because you're not having to share some of the income that you do generate with a partner. That's that's correct. And basically also that, that I think that it's a sign of how much experience our team has in doing so and how much respect and how good connections we have with the ecosystem to do so. I just want to add up something else because I, we just discussed with American Express and one of, of our investors were asking American Express, why just Bexy? Why they don't have a lot of other Bexys, you know? And they were saying, because we are very worried about our brand and we have to be sure that we are partnering with someone that has enough reputation and experience and are savvy enough to take care of it. So it's not about how many Bexes we have, but how many correct partners we have. And we are one of them. 
For sure. No, that seems critically important. Well, congratulations again on the raise uh, and for talking us through kind of what you guys are doing and kind of what, what impact you ought to have on the market. So we'll be keeping our fingers crossed that this is just the, the first step of, of world domination. Um, sadly, going to have to move us on to our next story, and that comes from FinExtra. And that is that gig workers are being denied equal opportunity to financial services. 76% of gig workers have struggled to get approved access to financial products such as a loan or mortgage, despite having a good credit score, according to research by employee data platform Rolly. More than 1,000 gig workers were surveyed in total. It also found that on average, gig workers have had to apply to three different lenders before receiving access to a credit card or loan. The survey also noted that 52% of gig workers had lost out on a new home as they were declined by a bank or building society. Rolly puts his current lack of access down to the traditional and manual operations which financial institutions currently use to verify a person's source of income, and they're pushing for change. Ali, thanks for joining us. You use this data as part of an op-ed for Finextra, so I'm going to come to you first to talk us through it. Talk to us a bit more about what this financial exclusion looks like for, for gig workers in sort of real human terms. I mean, to put like more context, I mean, at Rolly, we, we believe their data is their best asset to, to increase their acceptance rate with financial services first. Um, and uh, we see ourselves as an enabler that removes frictions to access critical data points like income, for example, and bring more transparency and knowledge uh, on it. Um, and as a gig worker, uh, you will just struggle actually to justify your professional situation because you don't have the right tools to make it. Uh, and for financial services, this is not because they don't want actually to, to accept uh, gig workers. It's just because they consider them as a risky profile just because of their working status, because they don't have the layer to just evaluate in the right way what is the current professional situation of a gig worker. Uh, do their like, income are regular or not? Do their, do their actual activity uh, is regular or not? And um, this is, from our perspective, how we see our positioning is to bring more trust between financial services and their users with our infrastructure. Not thinking about what is the current financial situation of my user if she's a gig worker, just usually to analyze in, the, in a better way uh, their financial situation. Yeah, no, it sounds like there's a lot of pain points to solve here. Um, I suppose you've talked about the importance of, of, of data and kind of bringing that together. What else do you think we need to do alongside the data to kind of move this sector forward? We observed that uh, the self-employed status is growing super fast and that a lot of people, even if they are not traditional gig workers, like, for example, delivery riders or, or drivers, they want to, to be self-employed. They want to choose their customers. So at the end, they are not, they are not considering anymore as a full-time employee. So we just need to not consider someone as a risky profile just because of like this working statue. We just have to look at alternative data and to just understand what are like the dynamics behind the professional situation of someone. Um, if, for example, I mean, I, I know a lot of developers that they were like working for fintech, having like a good revenues, but they increased their revenues by being self-employed. They decided to be remote worker and actually they have a better life and a better financial situation. But if they go to their bank, the bank will ask for more proofs. They will ask for more things than before. And just this simple observation has to be discussed not like solved right now. I mean, we can take our time, but just like discuss and say, why are we considering uh, people who decided to change the working status as more risky than before because of this simple fact? So we believe that this situation can't stay, can't like stay for a long term because the future of work is, is actually here. It's now. We see like more and more new kind of workers and the uh, banking landscape struggle to adapt their, their old rules to the current uh, situation. Um, so we think that banks, financial institutions have to invest more in understanding the, the needs of the new workers. And by understanding, we think that having a data-driven approach, relying on data is better than just, for example, listening to myself saying that you should right now uh, work with us. It's just look at the data, make your own analysis. We're here to help and we can like work together to increase your acceptance rates while keeping your default rate. It's not because you decided to be a self-employed uh, uh, person that you are uh, going to not refund your loan. It's not uh, like really correlated. It's more correlated on how you uh, consider uh, your relationship with your bank and if you at the end plan actually to, uh, to refund your loan. 
Benjamin, I'm seeing a lot of head nodding here. I'm guessing you agree. Yeah, I'm completely agreeing with Ali because I think there's a fundamental mistake that some people make about the digital economy. They think this is just about doing old things in new ways. But actually, a lot of what's happening in the economy is people doing, finding completely new things to do. You know, as Ali is saying, you know, gig economy workers are working in a totally different way to the way that people were employed 20, 30, 40 years ago. You couldn't do the kinds of things that people can do today. You couldn't work from home. You couldn't, um, you know, have multiple employers. I mean, you could in a few sectors, but generally it was very hard. So, the fundamental way in which many people earn money is changing. Um, people's lifestyles are changing and so on. And what's happening is old established firms that haven't understood that are getting caught out because they're relying on digitized versions of their old paper systems. They're using credit scoring systems or other types of systems from 20, 30, 40 years ago that when they were developed in the 1970s were great, but we're not in the 1970s anymore. We're in the 2020s. And I think what Ali is trying to do uh, with Rolly is solve some of these problems because there's all sorts of problems where people's lives have changed and there are organizations, not just banks, but organizations all around the world, banks, insurance companies, you know, legal systems, etc., that haven't caught up with the way the world economy and the digital economy and how people live and work today has changed. Absolutely. No, I agree as well. Lots, lots of head nodding all around. Um, <laughs> Cynthia, obviously you talked um, about the importance, I suppose you described it as the informal economy in Mexico. As Benjamin said, I think lots of parts of, of you know, our society are still trying to catch up with, with what the gig economy is and what it means. What's, what's the take in, in Mexico? Is it, I think obviously a, a higher proportion of the Mexican population are, are already in this form of work. Is, is there a better understanding there or are, there, are you seeing the same gaps in, in approach and, and understanding? Uh, definitely the same gaps. I think the difference is that gig workers in Mexico, you have two kinds. The ones that are willingly working in, in, in that, like, like that, because they want more, I don't know, flex hours. They earn more money, whatever it is, you know, or they are, or, or they are in that situation because simply there are not enough formal jobs. So whatever it is the case, we are not serving them as a society. Why? Because they don't exist. They don't have a credit history. They can prove income, you know? So I think there are more and more apps that are helping them to have a proof of income and to track that income so they can be somebody that can prove what they do, uh, but it is not enough. It is not enough what, what we are doing so far. So Benjamin, we've talked about, you know, the shortcomings in credit scoring models what else do you think the financial services sector needs to be doing to serve this community better? I mean, it's it's, it's simple stuff. I and mean, some of the things that, that Ali was already talking about, about, for example, can you use technologies like open finance uh, or standards like open finance and so on to understand someone's overall earnings? Can you look at those earnings over time to understand who's really creditworthy? Um, how are you going to think imaginatively about 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds, young people who haven't had a chance to prove a credit history yet? Um, are you looking at, you know, they're, they're making rental payments and the payments that they make and so on to start establishing credit histories and credit files? Um, are you going to think a bit more imaginatively about who is risky and who is not risky? Who's going to pay money back and who is not? What are all the different factors you can take into account? I think one of the issues here is, is there are some companies that are, don't know how to handle big data. They don't know how to use artificial intelligence because it's hard. But, you know, there's huge amounts of data. I mean, we give off frightening amounts of data every day and all the actions and activities we do. In some of that are clues to our behavior and whether we're trustworthy or not. So, there are companies that really need to think much harder about how are we making decisions about who we lend to, who we insure, and so on. What other sources of data can we use? Because we've got great customers that we're turning away because they don't fit into the conventional nine-to-five corporate job model, but they're actually amazing people who are you know, very creditworthy or could be very creditworthy if you just give them a leg up. So it's really about thinking differently about what is the information we have and how can we be smarter and think more widely about people's lifestyles because not everybody works nine to five in a perfect nuclear family. Um, it's just not the reality. And yet we've designed models that assume that everyone is kind of normal, but people aren't normal. We're all different. Ali, obviously we've been talking about credit scoring a lot, you know, in obviously how credit scores work vary in different markets around the world. But you know, is there a way forward where it's about building you know, better relationships with credit agencies? Is, is that a way forward out of this? What 
what do, what do you think about like what role do credit agencies or credit bureaus have to play in in improving this space? So first of all, I mean there is like a complexity of building European payroll API that we are doing is that I, I think that not a lot of people know that in France uh, there is like no credit bureaus, no credit scoring, public credit scoring. I mean all banks and all fintechs build their own credit score, scoring model, which is completely different from the UK, where everyone is used to build their own credit score. Um, so we think that some rules of uh, the current credit scoring model system, for example, in the UK, make totally sense, especially about like seeing if people are spending in the right way or uh, are, um, are, are willing, like, of course, like to invest some of their money savings, etc. Uh, we prefer to focus on like the income layer because this is where the, the current pain really exists is for people that have a diversified income. Uh, they they just struggle to prove like this part which is essential to evaluate the credit uh, worthiness of someone um so we think that credit bureaus first have to adapt their rules based on each category of workers we should not have a global way to score everyone we should start building some clustering and saying that for this category of workers we're going to apply those rules those rules could be transferable to to the to the other one and for Evaluating the income, we are going to adapt to everyone because everyone has a different way to make uh, to make some income. So, just like this pain of evaluating the income is completely huge. Then we ha you have other things about evaluating the the, the let's say like the, the spending behavior, which is like another way. I think that open banking is really well suited to that. We prefer just to fo to focus on the other one and to find the right data sources to help credit bureaus having a good view of the income situation of their workers because it will help them to increase their acceptance rates. Just that can uh, make like the, the the credit scoring more inclusive for millions of people. Yeah, that would be fantastic to see. Um, well said, well said. Absolutely. <laughs> I think I, I, I disagree a little bit with that, Ali, because I think that works if they have credit story or if they can prove income. But what happens if they can't, you know? So you just have to find a way to show how trustworthy they are. And I think what we can do is st start small, you know? And that's what we did. We start with small credit lines and as they prove they are going to use well their their credit card you will have more data and more data to have to have a very a better response to new customers but also more data to create a path for the ones that are entering the system i think Cynthia, that actually we we agree together because uh like as a lender if you want like to lend someone what I say to my customers, because I'm not a lender, I'm just an enabler, I'm, I'm B2B fintech infrastructure. I say, if you want like to address a new population, it's better to even lose money during like the first two, three years to, to build an adapted credit scoring model for this population, because you will in the future be the leader in this category and underwrite them better. This is what Capital One did 20, 30 years ago, and this is how it should work. I, I mean, I struggled with a lot of fintech before saying that you should not apply some arbitrary rules at the beginning for a category that you don't know. You should just go for it and then you accept like this potential, uh, uh, this uh, potential like lost because in the future you are building your data assets and you are making the credit scoring more inclusive. Uh, I think that the question was more about credit bureaus and how traditional credit bureaus were thinking about building their own models for like the different category of population. And I think that because they have a lot of data, I think that credit bureaus have potentially like the institutions that have more data than anyone uh, in, uh, in, in, the, in the fintech industry, they can start uh, going deeper into their data and start uh, leveraging this data to improve their clustering, to improve their understanding of the different category of workers. But I completely agree with you that if you at some point want to launch a financial product, you should not just start minimizing the loss at the beginning because you are going to lend to the same people. You are not going to make the underbanked better served. You got me there, Ali. I think we can all be agreed there's just a ton of work that needs to be done in this space from all sorts of different angles. So um, I suspect we could talk about this for the entire show, but we're going to just take a quick pause here and we'll be back very shortly. Focus is the latest FinTech Insider podcast strand joining your weekly news and insight shows. We're taking all of those burning financial services questions from across the globe, then hopping continents and crossing borders to put them to the biggest players in the industry. 
WISE is the global fintech that's uh, helping people move money all around the world. So Money Hub is all about helping people be better off with their money. Bit of background on Kareem, we are the leading everyday super app of the Middle East, North Africa and Pakistan region. We're also giving you all of the context to really understand what's going on and get you clued up on financial services globally. These bi-monthly breakdowns are essential listening wherever in the world you're downloading them. Fintech Insider Focus in association with Visa on your favorite podcast platform every other Wednesday. Welcome back. Before we get on to the next half of today's news, a reminder to go check out the latest episode of our Fintech Insider Insights show. I was joined by expert guests from Ramp City and 11FS to discuss how you put the customer at the center of your financial services product. Go check that out wherever you got this podcast. Why not queue it up in your podcast app after this one? Okay, let's get into our next story. That comes from The Telegraph, and they're saying, welcome to bank branch where you can't even deposit cash. UK broadsheet newspaper The Telegraph is unhappy with the latest development in banking. They said that for centuries, customers have used bank branches to withdraw and deposit cash, but this everyday activity could soon be a thing of the past. Banks across Britain have slowly started to launch a strange new type of branch, one that does not accept cash at all. It would have been unthinkable in 1650, apparently, when a cloth merchant called Thomas Smith opened the first provincial bank branch in his native Nottingham in the UK. Yet there are now at least three banks in the UK where the Queen's, or soon the King's, face is nowhere to be seen. Barclays, which operates two of the branches in King's Cross and Hanover Square, both in London, said they are designed for customer meetings with bank staff, while Santander said its cashless branch in Leeds is primarily for a co-working hub. Both banks pointed out that the branches are within easy reach of others, which do facilitate cash deposits, and Barclays said it has no current plans to expand them elsewhere. Well, Telegraph, obviously, very excited about this, but we decided to ask uh, on the 11FS LinkedIn and Fintech Insider Twitter, is a bank branch really a bank branch if you can't deposit cash? And with more than 320 votes cast, the results were 25% saying it's a bank branch and 75% saying it's not a bank branch. <sighs> Benjamin, I mean, where, where do you stand on this? What, what is, I guess it's a very philosophical question, like what is a bank branch for? Well, I'm actually going to stick my neck out and disagree with our listeners, which obviously puts me in a minority here. Um, you know, people never talk about what's the future of restaurants, but people always talk about what's the future of bank branches. And it's because bank branches haven't really established what their purpose is, right? What's a bank for? Is a bank purely for depositing and exchanging cash? Or is a, is the purpose of a bank to actually give you advice on how to manage your money better and make the most of your money, right? To me, bank banks... The purpose of banks should be to help their customers make better financial decisions and make better use of their money. That doesn't mean that there shouldn't be places where you can deposit and withdraw cash. I think if you look at cross economies all around the world, there's an awful lot of capital and people tied up in handling physical cash. Now, obviously, there are particularly older customers in many economies who still need physical cash. So there needs to be a way of doing that. But I actually think it makes a lot of sense for banks together to share those cash deposit facilities. They already outsource a lot of that to security companies and so on and convert their bank branches into places where people can get financial advice and make better financial decisions. So I actually think the Telegraph is talking a load of nonsense there's all sorts of things that were unthinkable in 1650, like <laughs> flight, like the internet. I mean, it's a ridiculous story. We're not in 1650. We're in 2023. It's a nonsense story. And so, yeah, I think it makes complete sense for banks to explore other ways of using real estate to provide people with financial advice. People do get very you know, emotional and excitable about the future of cash, right? So it is a very emotive subject. Like I remember when I first joined 11FS and told my told my grandma, she got very cross and said that I was like, individually responsible for her local bank branch closing. Um, but yeah, as an industry as a whole, I think we're still trying to work out how we, how we facilitate this migration to digitally enabled banking without um, disconnecting people for whom cash is, is still a fundamental part of, of how they run their financial lives. Absolutely. Um, Cynthia, obviously, you know, Bexy has referred to itself as a bank, despite not offering a current account or other banking services, which I'm sure the Telegraph would also get very upset about. Um, why, why have you decided to describe yourself in that way? You know, do you see physical locations or physical interaction spaces as part of like your future roadmap? I think I agree that this discussion is nonsense. It's like asking if Amazon is a retailer, if you can't actually touch things and you can actually talk to somebody to ask about what you're buying. 
So uh, about us, about describing ourselves as a digital bank, I think it has to be, first, we are very clear that right now we are offering a credit card. And I think the description of a, a, a digital bank is because it, it transmits where we want to be, you know, what we want to do next, which is offering more products and be a whole, like complete or offer to our customers. And I think there's a market for everyone, you know? I don't, to me, it's not like us digital banks against branches because you will do what suits you best. In these busy days, like an hour that you're saving in the banks, and frankly, it's more than an hour what you spend in a bank, it's very appreciated by, by most of our clients. Not to talk about our, our customers that work from nine to seven and they work at the same hours that traditional bank branches are open. So if you're granting access 24 seven, seven days a week at the, at every hour that you need or you want to talk to or you want to administrate your, your bank account, why not doing it? It's not against, like, it's not, it's not that we are declaring the war. To, to bank branches is just an additional offer and it will serve whoever feels like it suits, suits them best. Obviously, I think there are lots of people who assume that the cash economy is particularly relevant to gig economy workers. Um, you know, is that something that you've seen from your experience? Does the lack of cash deposits at banks you know, make it more difficult to track earnings and to kind of get that data like correctly as, as you've sort of talked about? being so important? I, I think it's not a problem in Mexico that there, there is not enough banks where you can deposit your cash. Definitely, definitely, the, the, the cash is, is the king in Latin America. But I think that we still have a lot of transactions occurring in cash and you don't even need a, a debit card, you know? So uh, even I think building into the future of credit cards, something that we have to work in is in the infrastructure of places that actually take a credit card or a debit card. So there is a lot of cash going hand by hand in, in Latin America. Ali, what do you guys see in, in, in your data? Because we started to focus on the European market uh, and especially the UK and France, cash is not king. I mean, the majority of gig workers wants to be paid by, I mean, payment transfer by, by card. Um, but cash options is available, uh, like in France for some gig platforms. Uh, the funny part is that we, we interviewed a lot of, uh, drivers, PCO drivers, and some of them refused like to be paid by cash because they didn't want to spend their money during the weekend with their friends. So they said, I'm building, uh, some, I want to have some savings. I prefer like to have only like some, some, uh, some payments. Um, but the vision of role is to address the European market, but we, we communicate on that several times. We look at the African market in the future and we started to build some relationships with emerging companies in countries like Nigeria or Egypt. And we see that cash there, of course, it's very common that Cynthia said, like in, in, in Latin America. Um, I, the majority of our data comes from European market. And I can say that, uh, I can say that now, I mean, for what we, what, what we looked at, um, cash is not king in Europe. Um, but in Africa, it's, it's cash is king. We, that's like a big assumption, but I think that in the, in the future, we can verify, verify that with some uh, internal data. Can I just add one very quick point? This isn't new. This is a very parochial UK story. Um, SNS Bank in the Netherlands introduced cashless branches as far back as 20, 2013 um, or 2010 even. In Denmark, there were no bank robberies last year. The reason there were no bank robberies is there's only 20 of the country's 740 branches even hold cash. So if you look at the Nordic countries, as Ali was saying, you know, across different you know, Europe, European countries, you've got very different levels of cash. Parts of the Nordic countries, hardly anyone is using cash these days. Um, so good for the Telegraph. I'm sure it helped them sell more newspapers. But the reality is bank branches are changing and they have to. Benjamin, Benjamin's, Benjamin's on a roll today. I'm going to finish on that powerful point. I'll move on to our next story. And that one comes from Sifted. And that is, which European banking app is winning the race for customers? It's been a decade since Europe's first neobanks emerged, promising users easier access to their money than legacy banks, on top of buzzy interfaces and smart features. 
but the incumbents didn't back down from the challenge and hit back with their own digital offerings. So who's winning the battle for downloads? To find out, AI-powered software tool AppRadar analysed how many downloads Europe's top neobanks and legacy bank apps have attracted using data from the Google Play Store. AppRadar found that Revolut is the most downloaded banking app in Europe with more than 26 million app downloads since launching in 2015. The Challenger app sits above lifetime app downloads for Credit Agricole, 13 million lifetime downloads, Barclays, 11 million, Santander, 10 million, and Intesa San Paolo, 9.7 million. However, JP Morgan's Chase Bank is currently the fastest growing banking app in Europe, surging 1,753%, wowza, from launch in September 2021 to the end of 2022. Well, Benjamin, everyone seems to get very excited about app downloads. Are they a, a stat that we should be getting excited about, or is it a bit of a, a red herring, do you think? Uh, y- yes and no. I mean, it, if customers aren't downloading your app, then they're not going to be using your app and they're not going to be digital customers and so on. Obviously, there are customers who are not digital, as we were just talking about in the previous story about cash. Um, it's quite a good leading indicator. Um, if you've got those people starting to use you, then you can potentially start cross-selling more things to them. You know, inc- you know, digital is the primary touch point, the mobile app in particular. So if you haven't got customers using your app, it gets a lot harder to cross-sell them because they're not walking into your branches anymore, as we were just talking about. So actually, I think this is a big deal. What really matters, of course, is yes, what's the income that Revolut generates from its customers or these other, all, all the other banks and so on. So it's just one indicator. But if you haven't got people downloading your app, and you've got, not got people using your app, then you've got a problem. Absolutely, yeah. Um, Cynthia, I'd love to get your perspective. Obviously, you guys have recently done a raise. How important are these types of numbers in, in a sort of VC investment environment? Uh, we've been quite conservative on, on that side because at some point, like when we were raising and starting all this uh, talking to funds, something that we heard is like, you have to grow more, 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 you know? And... It was something to us that didn't make sense because it was like, we want to grow more, but we want to grow in a healthy manner, you know? Like, of course we want, we want downloads, but we also want users that pay. We want users that stay with us. We want users that uh, don't have a very high uh, loss to us. So we decided that we wanted to go in between. We, we, we didn't want just to burn cash. And I think in the long run, the market show was right because we, we were 100% sure that a path to profit, profitability was more important. And that allowed us to survive during, during COVID because we were able to bootstrap because how healthy our numbers were, you know? So definitely, I, I believe that more downloads or just more numbers are not the a proof of your success. No, that's, that's, that's really interesting to, to hear kind of from your experience. I suppose the fact that we kind of keep coming back to this conversation, I think to me speaks more to the, the shift we're seeing in how the financial services industry is thinking about, you know, customer lifetime value generally. I think like historically, maybe you had the assumption that, you know, so I, you know, I have an incumbent bank account which I signed up to when I was when I was a child. I assumed that probably at the time I did that, they probably thought that I would stay with them forever. I would, you know, have all my savings accounts with them. I would get a mortgage with them. They'd, you know, cash me in over the long run. Actually, you know, that's no longer the case. Like when you're sort of a mainstream incumbent bank, that that kind of traditional uh, you know, path for your customers, where you can you can capitalize them on over time, just just isn't isn't the same anymore, right, Benjamin? Like people have to make different calculations or different sort of guesstimates almost, right? Because this is all totally new territory. Like how does, how can a bank really work out how profitable a customer is going to be over the long term anymore? It's, it's just really hard, right? It's not quite totally new territory. I mean, we've been, this has been going on for a couple of decades and customer behavior is slow to change. But I agree with your fundamental point that the old assumptions are a bit like the old assumptions about, you know, data scoring and credit scoring that we were talking about earlier. You know, the old assumptions about uh, customer lifetime value and how long a customer will stay to you and what share of your customer you actually have um, have changed. You know, interestingly, some of the leading European banks about 10, 15 years ago started monitoring how much money customers were transferring out to Revolut, to PayPal, etc. So some of the the, the savvier uh, traditional banks or incumbent banks know, are really watching where are people moving their money so they can see, do we still actually have someone's core transactional account 
uh, or are we losing it? So yeah, I think it's fundamental that banks really think hard about what kind of relationship do we have here? Have we just got a dormant account where someone's paying their salary in and then they're just shifting all the money out to a Revolut or, or, or any other uh, digital bank? So yeah, I think banks need to really evaluate what kind of customers have we actually got and what kind of relationship have we got? Have we just got inertia or have we actually got a, an actual relationship with our customers here? Yeah, absolutely. Ali, what, what was your reaction to this this story, these numbers? Were there any that surprised you, any that you were impressed by? I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm surprised or not. Um, I know that building a, a bank, for example, takes some time. And so I agree with Cynthia saying that... Uh, at the end, we know that banks are making tons of revenues, incumbents, their business model is stable, everyone is a bank. So if you want like, to compete with them and to build a digital neo bank, uh, you need some time to just uh, create your path uh, to, uh, for, for the, to the profitability and also um, differentiate yourselves from like the competition and from the traditional banks. So for me, it's a strong signal that we all have the banks of our parents. And at some point we think about using like a new service because it's matched with our current, um, with our current uh, requirements uh, for, from like banks. Um, so I just, I just think that, I mean, I mean, that's all. I mean, that's all. I don't have like an, another thing to say for me. This is like my point of view, actually. So, yeah. No, no, absolutely. Um, I think it's 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 just really interesting to get to get everyone's different responses. Okay, now for the section of the show called Big Click Energy, a quick fire roundup of some more clickworthy news this week. Benjamin, what have you got for us? So this was reported in the UK's Sky News. The Cooperative Bank has turned the corner with a bid for the £650 million Sainsbury's Bank mortgage book. The Cooperative Bank is underlining the revival in its financial performance by tabling an offer for a £650 million loan portfolio being offered by rival Sainsbury's Bank. Sky News has learned that the Cooperative Bank, which is owned by a syndicate of private equity firms and hedge funds, is among the parties which have tabled a bid for the book. One insider said on Tuesday that the co-op is the front-runner in the process, which is being run by advisors at Deloitte. Starling Bank also expressed an interest but withdrew from the auction some time ago, the insider added. The move is significant, partly because it would herald Sainsbury's Bank's formal exit from the UK mortgage market after it ceased new lending in 2019. So, it's true that the Cooperative Bank hasn't really been in the news much since about 2013. Those of you with long memories who've been in financial services for a while will remember there was a very interesting story involving the Methodist minister chairman of the Cooperative Bank and um, sex lines and um, alcohol and all sorts. Uh, it was really quite a colourful story that resulted in the Cooperative Bank actually ending up being owned by private equity firms and hedge funds, having previously been an ethical bank. Well, it still is an ethical bank. So... Happy to see the Cooperative Bank starting to turn a corner because it was a very sad story of a long-established, mutually-owned firm that came completely off the rails. So I'm very happy for the people at the Cooperative Bank if they're getting back, uh, if the bank's getting back on its feet because it was a well-run organisation that just ran into a brick wall. Um, so very happy to hear that things are starting to get back together there. Yeah, absolutely. Um our next story in this section comes from AltFi, and that is that Neobank Bunk hits profitability. Amsterdam-based Bunk has just reached quarterly profitability. Having reached break-even for the first time at the end of December 2021, the Neobank has steadily worked to profitability since. Describing itself as a Neobank for location-independent people and businesses, Bunk said the profit will fuel its further growth and expansion. Last May, it acquired group expenses account TriCount, which added another 5.4 million users to its platform and made it the second largest neobank in the EU. So um, it's a kind of a nice nice run that we're getting of, of these stories where we're seeing different uh, neobanks hit, hit profitability. So I, I think we've sort of commented on this previously that actually it's, a, it's, it's definitely sort of shifting the dynamic. You know, historically, you would, you would go into these conversations with incumbents and they'd say, oh, these fintechs, they'll never, they'll never hit profitability, they'll never be viable. Um, and... Obviously, you know, it's one thing to hit profitability, it's another thing to maintain it. So there's still you know, things for them to prove. But it's very exciting to see across the industry more broadly. But for Bunk specifically, you know, always been a fan of them. They've always kind of had a, a, a focus on on offering customers those, those ethical options. You know, they have a sort of paid ethical uh, option in, in their account structure. Um, so me pleased to see that they're they're continuing to find success um, and still interested to see kind of how that how that acquisition plays out obviously that's a lot of customers to to acquire into a into a brand so keeping an eye on them to see kind of how that how that plays out and how well they manage to activate and maintain those those users in a different space 
Okay, let's bring everybody back for the final section looking at a more lighthearted story from the last week. This story comes from Chicago Sun-Times, and that is that BMO Bank no longer has a den for Hubert the Harris Lion. Chicago is losing one of its long-standing banking names and the mascot that goes with it in times long gone. When a parent would open an account at Chicago's Harris Bank, they would be gifted a Hubert the Harris Lion plush toy as a reminder of the virtues of saving. After a takeover in 1984 by Bank of Montreal, the bank's name and Hubert soldiered on. But the Harris name is finally being dropped, and so is Hubert, said a spokesman for what is now known as BMO Financial Group. The company has completed its $16.3 billion purchase of San Francisco-based Bank of the West and wants to simplify its branding across the board. Since debuting in the 1950s, Hubert the Harris Lion has lent his likeness to everything from ceramic cookie jars, piggy banks, clocks and bath mats. Hundreds of thousands of Hubert plush dolls have been given out over the years and the character is featured in some of the bank's most successful TV ads. Um, and obviously, listeners at home won't be able to see this, but we've got a very interesting picture of Hubert, Hubert the, the doll in, a, in, our, in our show notes. Um, Benjamin, how, how sad were you to read, read this news? Well, I'm not from Chicago, um, so I'd not come across Hubert before. So I'm not sad at that sense. Um, I think anything that helps introduce children to money and helps parents start to educate their children about money and get them thinking money is probably a good thing. Whether a mascot is the best and only way to do that I'm not sure, but I think things that help parents have conversations about money with their children are constructive and positive. Also, anything that helps a bank stand out, right? Banks can be quite bland, so having any kind of branding or messaging or thing that makes you distinctive and makes you memorable is probably an asset, whether Hubert the Lion has caused lots of people in Chicago and, and Illinois and so on to, to bank loyally at, at BMO Harris. I don't know. No, that's a, that's a very very sensible sensible point. Um, Cynthia, did you guys have have a cuddly cuddly mascot high up your list of to-dos when you were getting Bexy up and running? Oh, my God. I, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, in Mexico, mascots are for soccer teams. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, uh, no, we don't. Um, we have a dog that we use when somebody is not working properly. So we have the, like uh, what we call ourselves, Bexy cans. So this is the Bexy can, you know? Okay. And that's the closest we are getting to a mascot, you know? I do believe that there is a lot of financial education that we can do with children. And I should definitely love that we see that integrated on school classes. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Ali, I've been I've been told that we are launching a fintech insider podcast mascot, despite your despite everyone here's scepticism. <laughs> um, what what animal what animal do you think it should be and why? Well, um, I'm pretty biased because there is a dog, a Labrador, uh, at WeWork uh, in Paris, where like a work called a Rolly. So for me, it was natural actually to just take a picture of like this Labrador and saying Rolly by Rolly and it's sweet and everyone wants to use payroll APIs and like the life is good. Uh, but I, I can help my customer that are like B2C services to build some mascots, NFT or whatever. Um, of course, through our API, because you know, otherwise, like <laughs> it won't work. But uh, but um, yeah, I think that uh, I I said I'm biased. I love dogs. I love dogs. I love Labradors, and there's a Labrador called Rolly. So I think that it could be a good mascot. Yeah. I think. I mean, I wouldn't argue with that, Benjamin. What what animal do you think best represents fintech insider? Well, I always learn so much from everyone on this show. I learn so much from listening to people and listening to the podcast and so on. So for me, I would go for an owl because to me, an owl represents wisdom. And I learn so much from all the people who come and share their wisdom. So I would say an owl. That's pretty. I mean, I'm not sure owls are, are seen as like the most like forward, forward thinking, edgy kind of animals, are they? But is, is, I suppose, is fintech just about being forward-thinking and edgy? Or is it about coming up with better solutions and understanding the problems people have and working out how to solve them in, in new and better ways? So, yeah, okay, what's the most creative animal then? Go on, Kate. A creative animal. 
Uh, <laughs> or edgy animal. Edgy animals. I mean, I'm not even edgy as a human, so I'm very poorly placed to, <laughs> to judge edginess in, in people or animals. But maybe we need an edgy, an edgy owl. Um, I'm, sure we can, I'm sure we can find one. Okay, well, on that slightly odd topic, that wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much to today's guests. Where can people find out a bit more about you, Benjamin? Well, I'm very dull, um, but if you're really interested in finding out more about me, you can find me on LinkedIn or you can go to 11fs.com to find out about all the great work um, that we are doing here and that the rest of the team are doing. Awesome. Ali, what about you? You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm super responsive on it. Um, yeah. Cool. Um, and Cynthia, what about you and Vexi? I uh, also LinkedIn. I thought we were going to be Twitter Fox, but... I'm more on LinkedIn. I do. I do have Twitter. So you can find me on Twitter at k8.moody or on LinkedIn. Um, so yeah, that's that's all good for everyone. Thank you so much to our listeners for listening. You can join the conversation on social media or email podcasts at 11 Thank you very much. Goodbye. <laughs>